Welcome back, pals and gals, to the show that never ends. This is The Long Road to Ruin, and I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radledge. Let me tell you, folks, I am excited. I am ecstatic. The band is back together, and I don't have the words. I am not the word Smith to show the kind of expression and love I have for my co-host, so I decided I'm just going to say it with song, Welcome back, Sean. Mr. Anderson, welcome back. We missed you. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome back to that same old place that you laughed about.
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the long road to ruin proudly brings to you the co-host, Sean motherfucking Colomar! Hi, Sean. Good, bad, I'm the guy with an air-powered Nerf bow, a sonic screwdriver, a full pot of coffee, and a handsome black N7 sweatshirt. And ladies, gentlemen, and others, I am home. Did you, uh, so did you like your that, medley? That, that man managed to put all of that together despite having a wife who is about to pop at just about any second now with a kid that apparently cannot wait to get out and get into his first pair of pants. I did it for you, man. If that ain't friendship, if that ain't loyalty, I have no idea what in the world is. And let me tell you something. Uh, just like just like I knew would be the case as soon as as soon as I heard the Foo Fighters I yeah the the light went on uh, I knew that I was totally ready to do this again and thank you thank you so much to well to Mark first and foremost for being so damn supportive while I took some time off to get some things straight in my head and in my personal life that needed to be gotten straight uh, thank you to Robert Winfrey and uh, Patrick and Patrick Mullen for being such outstanding fill-ins while I was gone. Uh, you guys did absolutely wonderful. Thank you to Benjamin Cologne for another absolutely beautiful title card. I say this, I know, every two weeks, but he outdoes himself every time. Uh, but this one may uh, may actually be the very best he's ever done. Um, just, I don't know what else to say except thank you at this point. Well, we're glad to have you back, Sean, just in time for me to take off and leave the show to you. <laughs> but we're not here alone. <clears throat> we are talking the Evil Dead trilogy tonight, and we are talking the Evil Dead trilogy tonight because I lost the fucking bet, that's why. And the man who I bet against and promptly lost, and he got a chance to pick the very last uh, franchise that we would be discussing before I go on the Jonas Exodus, which could begin at any moment now. Folks, he's the casual... <laughs> I'm going to get it right this time. He's the Green Lantern to my, to my Batman. Last time I called him Superman and he yelled at me and I had to redo the whole, the whole uh, beginning of the show. Here he is, folks. Casual hero himself, Mr. Gavin Napier. How do you do, sir? Doing well. I'm a little disappointed that my original selection for winning the bet was shot down. But somehow I think the Evil Dead trilogy will probably work better than all 12 of the witchcraft movies. Uh, you know, yeah. Well, you know you what? Were, uh, two things. First off, I think that really kind of worked out. Well, no, actually backing way, way up a little bit. First off, let's get something clear here. Um, if you'll allow me a brief moment of ego. Uh, if anybody here... Is going to be the Green Lantern to Mark Rodelich's Batman. Gavin, with all due respect, that would make me Hal Jordan and you Kyle Rayner. Um, will you will you let me take the guy Gardner role? 
Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, actually, I could, uh, almost as okay. soon as the last syllable was out of my mouth, I felt kind of bad for calling you Kyle Rayner. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't want to be the weird art. Girls, 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 you're both pretty. Let's not fight. Oh, no, no. Oh no 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 yeah you definitely don't you definitely don't want to be a little emo tart, um, but uh, <laughs> the other thing being actually, uh, I'm kind of glad we didn't end up doing the witchcraft movies because to be perfectly honest, if I may kind of uh, doff my cap for a moment toward a fellow reviewer that I'm going to be paying homage to a couple times throughout the show, because she really kind of helped me out with getting my stuff together for this. Um, I don't know. Uh, Allison Pregler just finished up a couple months ago uh, her own 13-part full-length review series looking at all 13 movies. So I really don't know how we'd be able to top that. Um, and I would probably feel too much when I was going through all of them like I was actually ripping off all the jokes she was making. So... Well, I'm sure I'm going to be taking time off again in October, so... Uh, when I, while I'm gone, Gavin, I invite you to come on here with Sean, and you can dedicate October to witchcraft. But let's get to the Evil Dead, shall we? Shall we, folks? Yeah. Shall we, Green Lantern? All righty. Uh, so let me, uh, as I do with all of these franchises, let me tell you a little bit about um, my how I came to them, my history with them, and then I then I go around and I'll get uh, you, you know. Whenever we talk about these things, there's always somewhat of a passion for it, or there's something about the franchise that is worth talking about that, again, invokes a passion of some kind, whether it be um, hatred <laughs> or, uh, or something else. Um, in my case, I actually had no, no knowledge of the Evil Dead uh, at all. Um, when the uh, Army of Darkness movie came out, which was 1992... I think I went with my friends to the movies to go see it, but I didn't know what Ash was. I didn't know why he had a chainsaw on his arm. Um, I just knew that, it, you know, that my friends wanted to go see it, and this would put me about you know, ninth or 10th grade in high school. So I had friends who knew what the Evil Dead was, and they were like, oh, let's go see, let's go see the Army of Darkness. And I said, okay. And I remember laughing. I remember laughing at it. I remember thinking this is stupid, um, but in a fun way, not in a mocking way. And that's kind of where it ends for me. It, I had no other emotional attachment to the movie other than, well, that was a fun waste of an hour and a half. What else are we going to go do today? Uh, little did I know that this was a that, – that what a popular franchise this was and how, and how treasured it was to people who um, – Phone doors. Uh, who, uh, who are fans of the series. So uh, I want to kind of go around here, and Gavin, we'll start with you since it was your suggestion, and you are the guest. Um, what exactly brought you to the Evil Dead trilogy? One of my most vivid memories as a child was on Friday nights, <clears throat> or Friday afternoons, I should say, I would be picked up from school by my father because he was a teacher and his his schedule tended to coincide pretty well with mine. So he would pick me up from school, and the first thing we would generally do would be either run through Wendy's or McDonald's, grab something to eat, and then we would stop by one of the video rental places in town before heading home where I would be allowed to pick out one movie and one Nintendo game for the weekend. And he'd pick out a couple for him and Mom, and, you know, it was sort of the, the family weekend tradition. 
And anybody that I remember those days. Eighty. Anybody that grew up in the eighties and early nineties and was able to browse the shelves of video stores should remember one thing in particular about the horror movie section, and that is how great the art on the boxes were. Even the the absolute worst movies like Chud had just incredible box art that led you to believe that they were cinematic masterpieces that would scare the wits out of you. And it, it was an adventure unto itself trying to separate what simply had good box art to what was a good movie. And so the first, the first installment of this trilogy that really pulled me in and did so because of the box art was Evil Dead 2. It, the, the very stark black box with that skull with two fully formed eyes gazing out at you really grabbed my attention. And so that was the first one that I watched. And I didn't really have any preconceived notions going in because at the time I was maybe 10 years old. I was, I was just old enough to where mom and dad were comfortable letting me watch some of this stuff without fear of nightmares because I had proven that I could make it through Gremlins and, and Ghostbusters at an early age without spending the night screaming in terror. And, and so Evil Dead 2 was my introduction. And then I saw Army of Darkness because I was familiar with Ash and wanted to know what happened next. And then I eventually made my way back to the original Evil Dead. So I, st- I, I started in the middle, and the original was actually the last excuse me, of the three that I saw. So that was my introduction to the story, and I fell in love with Bruce Campbell's character, Ash, from the get-go. Sean, I want to hear what um, what brought you to be passionate about this franchise, but you as our resident historian, um, tell me a little bit about, if you, if you know, how it was that, and I'm sort of jumping ahead here, but how... The, the first Evil Dead movie comes almost across like a student film or a, um, you know, a short film that you would put together in order to pitch it to a studio in order, so that you can get a budget going for your bigger idea. And when you, when you watch uh, Evil Dead 2, they actually go back and sort of rewrite the history of the first movie and then bring it forward uh, into this new story. And I'm curious... As to one, again, your uh, why you're so passionate about this franchise, but two, one, why they why they chose to do it that way, and two, and we're going to get into this sh- uh, very shortly, but I think the first one is legitimately scary. But uh, when I was telling my friend about it that we were going to talk about this franchise, he he sort of did in a mocking voice. He was like, Ah, yes. The Evil Dead, a movie that was so scary, people laughed at it the whole time, and they decided, oh, I meant to do that. It's a comedy, and thus turned it into one. So, you know, obviously there's a different tone in Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. Why did they switch tracks when I think they had a good product with the first one? Well, you know, to be quite honest with you, to answer your first question, I didn't really necessarily come across the movie when it was new or even really when it was all that long after the last movie in the trilogy came out. Um, To be quite honest, uh, I actually was not even aware when I saw my first little, I got my first little taste of the trilogy, that this was a trilogy. The only thing that I remembered was 
Army of Darkness, which when I went back and checked, as it turned out, I was 10 years old and still growing up in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota when it came out, uh, I really wasn't aware of it when it was in theaters because I was not yet a huge horror buff by that point. And I also had one fairly overprotective parent and one who was a little more lenient but still kind of knew when to pull back the reins on what I was and wasn't allowed to watch. So as it happened, I think it must have been some years, some couple years or so after Army of Darkness had been in theaters, I happened to catch a brief little snippet of of the last, um, oh, it was probably about oh, 15, 20 minutes or so on TV and wasn't really even aware of what I was actually watching until some years later when I got to see the entire thing. And, of course, Army of Darkness stands alone so well as a movie that even though I quickly was informed that, yeah, there were two movies before and it was part of the trilogy, I didn't really feel like I had missed anything by not having seen at that point The Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. And your friend's description is actually not entirely accurate, but it's not entirely inaccurate either. The truer thing to say would be more so that actually Evil Dead was kind of the Mark II of this concept, actually. And when you refer to it as a student film, you're you're actually very spot on right there. Because the way it came about was uh, Sam Raimi's friend, Robert Taffert, had just finished his economics degree while Raimi was studying literature at Michigan State University. And while working on a film together, the two suggested doing that they should do something in a feature length. And Rainey was very skeptical because, as he told him at the time, there was no way they could manage to script together enough, enough money. Uh, hell, Bruce Campbell at that point had just quit his job as a taxi driver after dropping out of college. This was all in 1978, by the way. And they just kind of all decided to throw everything behind this movie because they all kind of thought, God, putting together a movie, even if it fails, has got to be better than what's awaiting us if we don't even try. And so they came up with this concept that was within the woods, which was sort of a, sort of a test, sort of a, a prototype of what would eventually become the Evil Dead. Um, they had a budget of $1,600 and filmed it over a three-day weekend. But, and, you know, ultimately they got, they got a good response and they held a, a very small private screening. And by 1979, they had their money to go spend the summer, spend the summer of 79 uh, shooting on a on pretty much a dental floss and clarinet reeds budget, what would eventually become this full length cult classic. And they and for the most part they were they were largely, by and large, very much kind of a 
three-man crew doing a very great deal of the work themselves. Uh, it was very much Sam, Robert, and Bruce. And so, yeah, that eventually became The Evil Dead. And what makes this franchise really unique, really special, and really kind of anomalous in all of Hollywood is this is the only time that I can think of, and anybody else who can name something else that has followed this arc, by all means, message me and let me know, and I will gladly, I will gladly retract my statement on the air and correct myself with an apology. Is It's the first time that you have a filmmaker, or filmmakers in this case, since we're largely talking about Sam and Bruce being the main masterminds, who made a movie, it did okay, and so they made a second movie in the exact same vein with the exact same characters with the exact same concept that doesn't acknowledge the first one ever happened but still referenced it with a sequel by calling it Evil Dead 2, despite it just being a revamp and a total shift to the first movie. And then you've got, from that second movie, a third movie, which, again, does not acknowledge the, that the events of the first one ever happened, and we'll get to, to what we mean by all this shortly, if that sounds confusing. And then years go by after that, after that third movie, 20 years to be exact, and several other people get together, and with the original mind behind the first franchise's blessing, put together a remake that also happens to be an alternate timeline set in the same universe that is destined to coincide with the continuing events from an upcoming fourth movie that was in the same original <laughs> franchise that all the first talk has gone cross-eyed. So what you're saying is that the CIA knew that the FBI was setting them up. Something to that effect. I think that's what he's getting at, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> okay, and, okay um, and, and let, let me get this out of the way right now, because I know you said you didn't want to discuss the remake at all, but I have to say this. I have to editorialize just a little bit. <clears throat> I hope, I really hope that the rumors that I've heard about the sequel to 2013's Evil Dead remake slash alternate world, alternate timeline sequel are not true. Because if you haven't seen the remake, this is one of those rare times I will actually highly recommend that you go out and track it down. It is in every way a qualified spiritual successor to the first movie. Absolutely. And their plan for this has been, since it was made, that the crew that made the Evil Dead remake would shortly thereafter make a sequel to it. They would make their own Evil Dead 2. And in the meantime, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell would together begin production on a sequel to Army of Darkness. And then eventually, once both those had been made and come out, the 
Ash timeline from the original franchise and the Mia timeline to reference the main character and heroine of the remake would then bring their timelines together in a series finale to, I believe, be called Evil Dead 4. (laughs) Okay. I have enough trouble following Disney and Marvel's uh, universe. Let's go back to a simpler time when they just made a movie about five people in the woods who get attacked by ghosts. Shall we? Oh, come on. You, you know what? Folks, it might sound... It might sound... It might sound absolutely convoluted. It might sound confusing. Trust me, it'll make more sense once you have gone out and seen all four of the movies that I just referenced. However... I, I'll, give, I'll give you this, Sean. I'll give you this. I guarantee you all of what you just said will come to fruition before Batman vs. Superman comes out. And how... Right. However, let me say that, for as oddly confusing and as risky and daring as all that creatively sounds, if you are a horror fan, especially a fan of cult horror, and what I just described has not just given you a throbbing erection with its concentrated weapons-grade awesome, I got nothing else for you. You may want to go find okay. something else to you may want to go watch a Yezuo Taku anime review or something, or go watch an episode of Nostalgia Critic. Watch watch something else, because I'm not sure we got anything for you. Well, I got something for Gavin. Okay. Moving right along here to our, to our first movie. Let's get into this. Um, aside from, I mean, obviously, you know, the special effects are, they are what they are. You know, if we're talking student film here, low budget, et cetera, et cetera. Right. They did the best that they could. But I will tell you, and this is why I don't understand, and I'm going to keep beating this drum, I don't understand, maybe I'm missing something here, why they would choose to go more in a comedic route for the next two movies. I mean, to the point where Army of Darkness is almost a self-aware, maybe, I don't even think almost is the right qualifier. It is a self-aware parody of itself, um, of this series. But going back, I thought this movie was legitimately scary. I mean, obviously... The um, the visuals don't necessarily hold up, but I thought that the um, the eeriness of the movie, the build up to uh, this cabin being haunted and these five people sort of descending into insanity and zombieism, um, I thought uh, I, I thought it did its job. I was you know I'm watching this on the plane, unfortunately next to my three year old trying to tilt the screen away from her <laughs> <laughs> on my computer, and she's um, trying to push. I'm like, come on. Play Palace Pets. Focus on your iPad, for God's sake. But um, I, I, I want to talk to you about that for a moment, Gavin. You know, either your impressions here of, of the frightening nature, if, if you felt like there was one, of this first movie. I felt like, um, just sort of walk people through the plot, uh, five people, two guys, three gals, one of which is Ash, uh, go to Cabin in the Woods, like you do, and they find, a, uh, they find the Book of the Necromicon, um, and they find a tape, of a archaeologist reading from it, and of course this then awakens the the, the devil, uh, <laughs> the, the spirits within, and they they begin being haunted. It starts with one girl, uh, who eventually becomes um, a, uh, a zombie, I guess zombie is that right? Um, undead. Undeadite. And yeah, and then she starts attacking everybody in the cabin, and one by one they fall, leaving only Ash uh, to uh, to tell the tale. 
that's really it. And we can get into the individual scares here, uh, but that, that, that's pretty much the movie. It doesn't get much more simpler than that. But, uh, you know, just that whole build-up to her, the first legitimate scare, where she's sitting by the window and you hear the voices in the woods going, join us, and, her, and it takes control of her hand and she starts drawing the Necromicon. Um, I, I thought that, that all worked, and it sort of goes on from there. And if you can div- divorce yourself from the silly visuals of it at times, um, I, I think you have the makings of a good horror movie. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong, and I think that Sam Raimi has proven through the years that he has a pretty good grasp on what makes a scary movie. Uh, for for my part, I enjoyed Drag Me to Hell. I thought Drag Me to Hell was an excellent work by Sam Raimi in the horror genre. Is it a great film? No, but it's a fun horror movie that sort of lives and dies by the tropes of the horror genre that we came to know and love in the 80s, and I thought that it was pretty well executed. And I think Drag Me to Hell... It, it's one of many films that we've seen that have obviously taken some cues from the original Evil Dead. Um, you look at things like Joss Whedon's Cabin in the Woods, obviously heavily influenced by the concept of the Evil Dead. And so I think you're right that there's absolutely a good premise there. But I think one of the things that Sam Raimi has done pretty well throughout his career, whether it's in the horror genre or the adventure genre or what have you, is he's known when to break the tension with a laugh. And I think that the shift of The Evil Dead from a straight horror movie into what what Sam and Bruce affectionately refer to as splat stick is knowing their limitations and understanding that as Sam has matured as a filmmaker to play to his strengths. Because as much as I love Bruce Campbell, it would be very hard to take him serious in a purely dramatic role or in, a, or in a situation where he was being asked to be serious in nature for a horror film. When you say that they touched upon a good concept, one of my favorite little tidbits from the Internet goes like this, and, and just bear with me because it's not very long. It says, many classic horror icons, such as Geiger's Xenomorph or Silent Hill's Pyramid Head and other disturbing creatures, share common characteristics. Pale skin, dark sunken eyes, elongated faces, sharp teeth, and the like. These images inspire horror and revulsion in many, and with good reason. The characteristics shared by these faces are imprinted in the human mind. Many things frighten humans instinctively. The fear is natural and does not need to be reinforced in order to terrify. The fears are species-wide, stemming from dark times in the past, when lightning could mean the burning of your tree home, thunder could be the approaching gallops of a stampede, Predators could hide in darkness, and heights could make poor footing lethal. The question that you have to ask is this. What happened deep in the hidden eras before history began that could affect the entire human race so evenly as to give the entire species a deep, instinctual, and lasting fear of pale beings with dark, sunken eyes, razor-sharp teeth, and elongated faces? And what they were able to do in the evil dead is play upon that part of the human psyche that when you're out camping in the woods and you hear a noise and you're not sure of the source, that it gives you a little bit of pause. And that when things are too still outside, that your imagination tends to run away with you. And I think the reason that Evil Dead originally was able to succeed as a horror film without any of the splat-stick comedy that they decided to incorporate later on is because, one, they didn't know any better, Two, they were playing on base instincts of the human psyche and things that everyone finds scary. And three, 
they hadn't yet learned their limitations, and so they just went for it. I don't think they would have had the same success if they had treated Evil Dead 2 as seriously as they did the original. All right, I want to I take you to task on that, but I'm going to bring Sean in here. Gavin's contention is that, if I'm reading him correctly, is that they, they sort of accidentally made an awesome horror movie. Um, but they couldn't continue in that vein with, with what they were doing there, and so they had to go into, what do you call it, Splatstick? Uh, Splatstick, that's, that's what Sam and Bruce I, call it. Okay. I don't, I don't understand that mentality. I don't understand, uh, Sean, why they felt like the second one needed to be done almost as a parody of the first movie, and why they... I mean, you know, you have a situation there where... The, you were, the only one left alive at the end of the first movie is, is Ash. And a second movie sort of following him in the woods and his descent into madness, um, and then the, the return of the daughter who was looking for her father, was a fine enough plot. And while I find, you know, oceans of blood, you know, <laughs> splashing into his face ad nauseum, you know, and a battle with his own hand to be funny, I don't know if it was necessary. Um, for those who are confused and, and normally listen to the show, we kind of tackle things piecemeal, you know, one movie at a time. We're, unfortunately, there's no way to discuss this trilogy without jumping all over the place. So for the, the, the sake of continuity here, the second movie, they redo half of the first movie, only they eliminate all the other characters except the girlfriend. Um, and then they introduce the daughter of the archaeologist who's come to look for her father, and it just provides more bodies to become zombified. And at the end of it, they open up a portal into the past to send the, uh, the, 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 the ghoulies back, and it sucks up Ash, and he ends up back in the uh, he ends up back in the Crusades to fight the evil where it is born. Ta-da! Back to my initial question: Why do they have to go the comedy route? Well, really, what it comes back to is Rainey initially never even wanted to do a sequel. He, he initially never planned on doing a sequel to The Evil Dead. It was initially envisioned as, okay, we did it, hooray, we're done, on to the next thing. Uh, which, at the time, for Sam Raimi, was a crime comedy called Crime Wave, uh, which he produced alongside Joel and Ethan Cohen. And his publicist at the time, Urban Shapiro, was the one who got into his ear after The Evil Dead had had its mainstream release and suggested that they maybe work out a a sequel to that. Well, Sam was willing to put all his eggs into Crime Wave's basket and completely write that idea off. Well, sometime after that, uh, Raimi meets Italian filmmaker Tino De Laurentiis, uh, initially because De Laurentiis had an interest in Sam doing a film adaptation of the Stephen King novel, Thinner, which would actually happen. I don't remember if Sam Raimi directed it or not, but there would actually be an adaptation some number of years down the road, for those of you who are, you know, trivia buffs. Um, eventually, they managed, they managed to, all get to, to all get to talking, and you know, it was actually Stephen King's recommendation that Dino agreed to fund the Evil Dead sequel, so they kind of reluctantly started coming up with that. But then at the time, uh, Rainey's friend and former collaborator Scott Spiegel got into Sam's ear 
and was the one who first suggested they should not go the straight horror route so much as to inject more comedy, make it a little more lighthearted. And that's kind of where all that really started from. And really, quite frankly, Mark, I'm with you in that, well, I'm, I'm somewhat with you, I should say. The thing that a lot of people forget is that horror is very much a multifaceted palette. It's, it almost shouldn't be considered just strictly one genre because you have so many distinctive approaches to it that can play off of, as Gavin described, those centuries ingrained human fears in so many different ways. You've got, for example, monster movies, specifically giant oversized monster movies, a massive beast of ridiculous proportions that normal-sized human beings just can't figure out how to deal with and just want to be rid of any possible way that you can. And giant robots. Punch them in the face. Yeah, boom, boom. I love it. Sorry, go on. Well, you know, we're, and we're talking about movies, obviously, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Kong. Pacific Rim. Either season, either season of Chloe and Lamar. <laughs> and then you've got yeah, that, movies that, that, about... That, that. And then you've got movies about man versus pure evil. Human beings up against demons that can't be reasoned with, that care not for our petty little beliefs and troubles and just want to rule the world and take over and dominate everything with it, with their evil... You also want to edit home movies. movies. You know, movies like... You know, stuff like, I don't know, The Evil Dead. Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. Keeping up with the Kardashians. You get my point. And so it's to that point that you have a movie that's done in a very low-fi, low-budget, simplistic kind of way. Something that burns scares not through big, splashy effects and bleeding-edge technology, but does it by building tension and then paying it off effectively, most notably through characters that you're actually made to care about. That's where you get movies like The Evil Dead, the first Saw movie, which, not coincidentally, two of my favorite horror filmmakers of all time are arguably Sam Raimi, and by the way, I'll agree wholeheartedly with Gavin, Drag Me to Hell was fucking awesome. By all means, go track that one down if you haven't, if you haven't seen it already. But much like that, Juan does the same thing in Saw, The Conjuring, Insidious. He doesn't really waste a lot of time with by lulling you into a false sense of security with jump scares, with fake-outs. He doesn't even waste really all that much time with comedy. He just finds a way through pacing, shot selection, music, and sound editing to make you uneasy, to put every nerve on edge and then normally, where a lot of movies would have a cat jump out of the closet or a 
sickish boyfriend tap the girlfriend on the shoulder. Oh, no, he actually gives you a real scare. He shows you that the danger is very much real, and he is indeed not in any sense whatsoever fucking around. That's kind of what we get with the Evil Dead, but we get it largely because, in this sense, we're given characters that were actually made to relate to, care about, right from the beginning. They're just, they really are just average, innocent, not necessarily especially despicable people. There really is... Well, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's one of the things I wanted to say, was you spend the first know, 20 minutes to a half an hour just dealing with these characters, and they're sympathetic in the way that they've done nothing wrong. This isn't, you know, they're, they're not running around the woods, you know, uh, smoking pod and screwing around. I mean, there's, there's some indications of, of sex going on, but, I mean, nothing, nothing much. And certainly nothing by today's standards that would be considered risque. Um, they just nothing seem to be born nice college. from Jason Voorhees. <laughs> right. Um, and there just seem to be five nice college kids that that found uh, some strange shit in the basement of a cabin <clears throat> and things got out of it. Certainly the first girl that gets attacked, you're like, what did she do to deserve this? And and that's one of the things, like I said, I like about it. Um, I'm going to go ahead. If you can just wrap up your point in ten words or less, I want to ask Gavin about a specific scene in the movie, get some final thoughts, and then move on uh, strictly to speaking, talking about Evil Dead 2 and then Army of Darkness. Well, yeah, because I, did, because I did have something to add to that, and that is that Evil Dead 2, you will not hear me at any point in this podcast really say that I feel like the direction, meaning in terms of, of course, the, the motifs of the script, the tone of the Evil Dead script versus the tone of Evil Dead 2, is necessary where one is necessarily more effective than the other. They're just different because the thing about Evil Dead 2, and this is a wonderful point that Alice made when she celebrated her 100th episode of Obscurus Lupa Presents with a little tribute to uh, Evil Dead 2, which is one of her favorite movies. And that is, is that it manages to mix the horror and the comedy just right by never giving you too much of one or the other so that if you're coming into it looking if you're coming into it looking to laugh okay you'll have okay you'll have your laughs on the other hand the people who are coming into it looking to looking to be scared are going to be able to also get those really creepy, unsettling, gory moments where you get a good sense for the true desperation of the circumstances. And it's hard to balance that out well, because too often you get movies like most of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. Right, where, where, it's, where, where, where it's completely right. out of balance. Well, well um, right, where they... Um, where they Go ahead, Sean. Well, I was, and I was just going to, well, I was just going to kind of wrap all that up by saying that as opposed to necessarily being an exercise in just keeping you tense the entire time and just really keeping you on edge at it, on edge at every moment, 
this is actually one of the few movies that get the idea of lulling you a little bit into maybe a little bit of a lighthearted sense, but then paying it off just right with something that's actually, that's actually authentic, because by this point, Bruce was really coming into his own as an actor. Uh, he was really learning how to develop a character and how to really... In the first one, he was still very much Bruce Campbell's former cab driver, who was just right. on a weekend excursion to make on a weekend excursion to make a movie. You know, much in the same way that right now Mark and I are a psychologist and an online marketer doing a podcast. But by this one, this was becoming Bruce's livelihood. This was becoming his, his passion, his direction in life. So he was Well I can really, tell you by his performance in the second two movies why I I now understand why people want to see him fight uh, Freddy Krueger and Jason. Um Gavin, I want to ask you a question about a particular scene in the movie, and then I want to move on from this. Okay. Uh, only, and only because, it, to me, it stood out as not really fitting in with the rest of the movie, and I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, so I want to kind of get your reaction to it. And that is the scene in which the woods rapes the, uh, the, the first girl, the first victim. Oh, right. because, because the movie kind of goes like this. Uh, someone gets possessed, they turn into a zombie, they bite someone, that person turns into a zombie, rinse, repeat. Okay, that's fairly simple enough. But for some strange reason, they threw this odd scene out in the movie where she, you know, where she finally decides, well, if you can't beat him, join him. So she wanders out into the fucking woods. Or she's dragged out, I don't remember. Um, someone's sure someone's going to start now uh, Facebook bombing me. She's dragged <laughs> out, what are you talking about? Anyway, she somehow ends up in the woods. Yep. And, uh... You know, tree limbs are grabbing her, vines are grabbing her, and then this turns into, you know, one of those uh, <laughs> Japanese anime porn movies where, where she's violated by, uh, by hentai. That's what you call it. You know, it, this turns into, into live-action hentai where she's violated by all, all manner of tree limb. And, like, yeah, I'm like, what's going on here? And again, I'm turning my computer, and then there's people on the other side of me on the plane. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to show them. It's like, you know, it's like I'm some sort of weirdo. Um, in any case, it's just like they finally, the, 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 first of all, and, and this may make me sound like a nut job, but I'm like, first of all, there's no tits in that scene. So I'm like, what are we doing here? There's, like, you're not going to show actual nudity in, in, in this. But and it serves no other purpose than hey, here's a horrible thing. What if the woods raped you? I'm like, how does this fit in with the rest of the movie? You know, it isn't as if like in the next scene, uh, Ash is going to be you know <laughs> throw out the robot chicken here. Ash is going to be raped by the you know <laughs> by the rape ghost, and that's the whole movie. Is everyone gets in, you know, and then this turns into pornography. I mean, it is, there's nothing like that in the movie. There's, there's, I don't understand what that scene was supposed to do for the rest of the movie. It was like they just was like, well, here's a horrible idea, and threw it in there. Like, now back to our movie. Gavin? I think it also speaks volumes about us as people and the culture that that remains one of the most iconic and enduring horror scenes of all time to the point that the people that made the reboot or the spiritual success or whatever you want to call the most recent version of the Evil Dead felt obliged to include it in their version. Well, uh, because wait, it's wait, more tree wait, 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 hang on, though. I would, I would contest that, and 
I'm sorry, I'm not mean I'm not meaning to be too pedantic here, but I, I would throw in there just as a clarification. Actually, that's one of the very few things from the original that I would dare say the remake improved on. And not just because <laughs> it was a neater looking, cooler rape scene, but in the fact that the scene was not in there just strictly because rapey, that's why. Um, <laughs> it was in there, and it was actually kind of made the genesis of the evil invasion right. of, of our, you know, our group in, of our group in the cabin. Um, the, but it seems like they were getting to her just by just by driving her crazy. You know, well, you know they, they they took possession of her hand in the one scene by the window. I mean, well, not 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 to dissect this too much, but so what you're telling me is the purpose of these the purpose of the forest rape scene is that's how the ghouls get inside the people, and then by that point now we can just start biting and to pass this along. Well, the woods themselves. That, that was go, how we got inside. Hang on, go ahead, say, the woods, the, the woods themselves, are the source of the evil. It, it, it has become a home for the evil. It's where the the demons, the deadites, whatever you want to call it, it, it's where they have set up shop. It's where they have been lured to by the Necronomicon, and it, it does sort of get reinforced, especially in Evil Dead Two, that. You know, being in the woods is far more dangerous than being in the cabin. There's a certain element of danger being in the cabin because certainly the the atmosphere carries the mist in and the possession takes place. But once you're outside in the woods, you're in its element. You you are out among it actively, and we we see you know the true power of it and of the significance of this evil when they try to escape and find every escape route blocked and bridges and mangled. And we see that this is very much the, that the woods around them are very much active in this process. And so I feel like it is, if anything, you could look at it as levels of possession and, and that you're dealing with on one hand, a poltergeist. So she's your, so she's your outbreak monkey is what you're telling me. Yeah, by by she, having been raped by is, the woods and therefore violated by the deadites, she's your outbreak monkey. And yeah, when she bites people, she's still passing it on, but to a lesser extent. It's it's one thing to be driven crazy. It, it's one thing to be annoyed and, and haunted. It's something else to be violated by evil. And I think the outbreak monkey is a good comparison. Um, she is now carrying the evil version of the deadly metabovirus. <laughs> um, Gavin, any last? And I mean, that's really all I have to say about this movie. I think, I think they hit it out of the park as far as being a good horror movie. I would have liked to have seen them stay serious and not get silly as they will do with the next two movies. Um, I think modern horror makers, if they're gonna if they're gonna make a movie, need to watch this in order to kind of you know gain you know to take elements of this and elements of. Uh, Paranormal activity and go make yourself a movie because there's stuff in both that work really, really well. Uh, just don't outright copy them. 
Um, but I don't really also I have think anything the, else to say other than I would have liked to, if they were going to continue with this movie, um, as they, you know, they do in Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, I think there was a lot more to be said and done with Ash out in the woods and having to deal with this evil that just won't go away without, without getting silly. But I want to give you the final word, and then let's move on to Dead Till Dawn. Go ahead. Um, I think I agree with you in that this is very much a master class in how to make a horror movie. I think it also shows the value of lowered expectations because somebody tells you, hey, I made a horror, budget, a horror movie on a budget of 1600 bucks." You don't expect a whole lot. If somebody comes to you and tells you that they made a horror movie on a budget of a few hundred thousand dollars, you're going to expect a whole lot more. I also think that, you know, as has been mentioned, they did an excellent job of using tension and building tension among characters that you are connected to on an emotional level and then paying that tension off. And I think that's the one thing where horror movies now tend to fail at is that they, instead of paying the tension off with a prolonged scene where there's genuine conflict for the characters. Um, American horror cinema has decided that they are going to pay off tension with sudden, loud upswings in music and things that startle you as opposed to things that scare you. And I think the original Evil Dead... Hang on, is it safe to say that the American horror movies are now throwing uh, scares in with the Benny Hill theme? But basically, you've just got monsters chasing people around houses to this. No, I don't think so. I Gavin? Just, I think that I think that American horror cinema has become too reliant on startling people as opposed to scaring people. And I think Evil okay. Dead was one of the true American horror movies that did a good job of legitimately scaring people. Okay. Um, let's move on into what there is to talk about about Evil Dead 2. Now, as I said, they, uh, the, we, we start off with a bit of um, a retelling of the first movie, only they eliminate the three other characters that they don't need, apparently, and they just do Ash and the girlfriend. Uh, the, girlfriend uh, the girlfriend plays the role of just about everybody else in the movie. Uh, she gets dragged into the woods. She's possessed. Uh, Ash uh, buries her in the ground, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Because, uh, you know, he can't dismember her. Um, and she continually attacks him. She bites his hand, which which causes him to have to cut his hand off. And then he puts the chainsaw on it. Um, and a, a lot of the movie is spent with Ash descending into madness and fighting off the evil. Um, if you saw the title card, Benjamin J. Cohen did an awesome job of um, creating a really eerie deer head. And to, yes. in, just in, in the research of this, people like they just love the deer head. The, deer, the, the, the talking deer head in the movie uh, makes the movie. But there's a lot of time just spent with Ash uh, dealing with all of this. And then another half of the movie is all new characters. And it deals with um, the daughter of the archaeologist searching for her father and wanting to be taken into the woods uh, by the local yokels. Uh, you know, back in there to see whatever happened to her father, and they, they, they run into Ash, and hilarity ensues. Um, I, I've repeated this now a few times. I'll say it one last time, and then we'll move into this. There, right there, you had the makings of a great movie. Instead, what you have is, is Ash doing his best impression of Al Snow wrestling himself. <laughs> and you, 
you get you get zombies that look even more ridiculous than the and and purposefully so apparently if they're going for a lighter lighter touch here but you know you get zombies that look like they walk straight off the set of the 60s batman show and i, I don't know um i can see why people like this movie because it's funny and if you're really into horror this is almost making fun of horror movies without it's paying, you know, it's parrying, parodying them, but not in the sense where you might see like a Wayne's Brother parody, where it's just gross-out humor. This is, you know, this is Mel Brooks style, you know, where it's paying, it's paying homage while still making fun of things, and that's what I got from it. And it, and, and I just, I can see why people enjoy it because Ash is a charming character and his performance is hysterical, but that's kind of all there is. And I kind of go back to the Benny Hill theme with this. This is. A lot of, a, you know, there's a lot of really funny things happening with some pretty, with, with the occasional eerie thing that happens, and that's kind of the movie. Gavin, your thoughts? I can see where you would get that from, and maybe I'm skewed a little bit because I saw the movie at a relatively young age. You know, I was seven years old when it came out. I was ten years old when I saw it, and... I enjoyed the recap, and, you know, somebody correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I seem to remember somewhere along the way reading that one of the reasons that it was boiled down to Ash and the girlfriend and the recap and everybody else sort of got left out was because the original actors and actresses really didn't have any desire to come back and refilm that part of the recap, and Sam Raimi didn't want to recast them. He preferred to just use Bruce and the girlfriend and and that was that. But for me, I thought that they did a pretty good job of following up the Evil Dead with what they had. And I think it's okay to shift the tone a little bit when you don't feel like you can live up to what you originally did. Because I, I think that I think that Evil Dead Two, done exactly the same as Evil Dead One, would have been very repetitive. Uh, I think that there was the danger, the absolute danger of telling the same story in the exact same way and offering nothing new. So I think the, the injection of a little bit of comedy, and I think that I think that the fact that they did some things that are a lot more subtle than people give this movie credit for, which we'll touch on before we move on to Army of Darkness, hopefully, I, th- I think that it shows that there was an absolute plan in place for Evil Dead 2 and the Army of Darkness, that it wasn't something that was just happenstance, that that Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell had a plan for both of these movies, and hopefully there's a plan for the eventual sequel that we're getting in the near future. Um, I enjoyed what this movie did. I enjoyed the evolution of Ash from hapless kid to guy that sort of goes insane and decides he's had enough, and come hell or hot water, he's going to stand up to what's going on. Yeah, it's a little bit over the top. Yeah, it's a little bit goofy, but... um, after, if you watch them back to back, after two hours of pure scares, the lightheartedness is a welcome shift to me. Okay, um, Sean. You know, normally I have you know some specific <coughs> questions sort of guide the conversation, but I'm honestly, <laughs> you've heard you've heard my thoughts on this, and I am at a loss as to what to ask you. So I'd like to get your opinion on your just overall opinion and what needs to be said about this movie, Evil Dead Two: Dead Till Dawn. You know, quite frankly, 
I, to be honest, would really agree with Allison's earlier take on this, that really this is virtually a virtually perfect installment in the franchise, especially for especially to introduce somebody to the franchise as a whole because it really is the one wherein if you were to put the evil dead on one side of a scale and the army of darkness on the other side of it, this would be squarely in the middle with those two tones. And it blends them magnificently because unlike the constant unease of the first one, Bruce Campbell really does lend this a just ridiculously kinetic performance. He is just all energy, all on, all of the time. But he manages to somehow, some way or another, with that unique, indelible charm that is only his, manages to avert Jerry Lewis territory with it. To the point to where you're, you're never left with a moment where Bruce just devolved into, oh, I'm not even dead, I know, Chainsaw and Grobey. Wait, do it again, do it again. Do it again. Oh, I'm waving Chainsaw hand to the dead, I know, with the one hand and the Grobey and the book. As God is my witness, Sean. I'm doing an Evil Dead remake with Jerry Lewis. Sean, before you move on from that, do you think that part of Bruce's ability to do that is the fact that he does have those classic good looks, the lantern jaw, the spit curl, the the very put-together physique, the baritone voice, and just who he is as a person allowed him to escape that? You know what? Every so often, someone comes along in film that just has something that you can't, manufacture. It isn't necessarily a great gift for acting, but it's something that translates well when you put it in front of the camera and you show it to people, and it makes people want to keep coming back and watching that person. Bruce Willis had it. Before him, a lot of the great stars of bygone eras had it because really they were just every man who happened to just practically one day just stumble upon a film set. Uh, guys like Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood, I mean, hell, John Wayne's big break came because one day he was, I believe the story is, moving some furniture around on a set, and the director, I want to say it was, uh, I want to say it was John Ford, I think, was trying to make a point to his leading man about how he wanted him to move, and he happened to catch a glimpse of the man who would change his name and become John Wayne and call him over and just kind of set him up as an example of this. This is how I want you to come across. This is how I want you to move. This is how I want you to hold yourself. And that is what Bruce has. The man is never going to be... Patrick Stewart or Sir Ian McKellen or Sir Anthony Hopkins or Sir Moe or Sir Mixalot or To Sir With Love. <laughs> Any of the above. He's just brutes. And that's all. But they're, nev- they're never going to be him either. 
Well, yeah, precisely, exactly. Um, and sometimes the thing that some actors who maybe try to let their reach exceed their grasp by going a little too far beyond what made them so popular is that they forget that while they're so busy trying to be somebody else, as you just put it, nobody else can be them. Jim Carrey has never quite gotten through that, gotten it through that funny-shaped head of his. Um, it's, you know, it's, and, and actually, to be completely fair, it's the same way filmmakers have never got, have never quite gotten it through their pointy little delusional skulls that, no, never in a million goddamn years is Leonardo DiCaprio going to look threatening, pointing a gun at anybody, which is why nope. he never needs see in their role like the one in Blood Diamond ever again. And this is what people love about Bruce Campbell, is they love the relatability. They love the charm. They love the just barely just a little bit turned up charm and bravado and goofiness. But in this movie, they're combining that actually with Sam being a brilliantly inventive filmmaker. And I see him, I say inventive not in that he's revolutionary, but that in number one, he knows how to use what he's good at, which is, you know, one of his most famous ones is the, uh, the long truck-in dynamic moving camera shots. Yes. I mean, he, he loves that shot the way that Kevin Smith loves static cameras and lots of dialogue. Um, but he knows how to use that. He knows how to get inventive with practical effects. This movie, if nothing else, proves something that's always going to be true about those two approaches to sci-fi and horror. And that is, you can, you can concoct CGI and digital effects that are going to look absolutely enchanting and positively breathtaking. However, be that as it may, unless you wield that with a very fine touch, you're going to take your audience inevitably out of the mood and the suspension of disbelief that you're trying to create. It's something that was, and, and we're going to get to this in a few months when Robert Winfrey and I do the Nightmare on Elm Street series. It's something that you also glimpse if you compare the pressed out wall scene in A Nightmare on Elm Street which was done with, you know, spandex dressed up to look like a bedroom wall and Robert England on the other side of it pressing on it versus the CGI, the CGI scene where, yeah, it's a more dynamic-looking Freddy that's pressing against it, but it also looks ridiculous and very clearly fake. If everything is very physical, it's very tangible, it's very much there, it's much harder for the audience to remove themselves from the scares and the tension. And actually, to be completely fair, uh, for the time being and for what they had to work with, I really think the effects were excellent. I think they were very well done, especially the makeup effects. Uh, I think all three movies, in fact, um, you should take a very proud bow for those makeup effects. Gory. I don't know if it's the makeup. See, the pro the problem is the, the the zombie 
effects in the uh, the second movie, especially not so much Army of Darkness. Um, I felt like, but um, five other issues with Army of Darkness. But I felt like like um, what was the movie? Like, like Goonies, you know, uh, the, uh, the the one character Sloth. I mean, yeah. it's gross. It's not pleasant to look at. But I wouldn't get scary from that, and it, it, and I just I would look at that and ask, what is it you're trying to tell me with with those effects? Because again, they did a great job of. I'm not going to argue with they didn't do a good job making um, unpleasant looking monsters, but I wouldn't go as far as to say they were scary either. They it's so over the top and so overdone that I just go, okay, yeah, and. And back to Ash, are fighting with his hand. Well, yeah, but again, though, I mean, to, to address the zombie thing, the thing they're going for is not so much zombies in the sense that we're used to thinking of them. Uh, You've got to remember, these people, while, yes, they are, they are technically dead, I guess, according to, the, according to the title, in that the Kandarian demon has possessed them, the fact is, is I think what they were going for was a little more the exorcist than, okay. uh, than George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in terms of the kind of monster they were going for. And in that sense, I think it worked in that they looked just deformed, just grotesque enough to get the point across. Uh, rather than that, it, that this was an actually well, obviously with the exception of Linda, a you know readily decomposing worm-eaten corpse here. Um, but and, and as to Bruce Campbell's performance, well, quite frankly, yeah, Bruce absolutely kicking his own ass. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's over the top. But again. They manage to let that go just long enough to the point to where it didn't go over long, and they didn't have moments like that so so densely in the movie by volume that it really took you out of the idea that this was supposed to be a horror story. And in that sense, again, that's where the balance comes in, is they knew just how to use the effects. And yeah, they knew they looked cheap. I mean, even even at the time, keep in mind, this was years after Nightmare on Elm Street had been in had been in theaters and really set a new bar for what mind bending visual effects could look like. But they really weren't necessarily going for a West Craven approach either. No, they so, were not. No, no, obviously they weren't. And as you mentioned, this was a precursor. This was not the ash of the first of the first Evil Dead, of the uh, prototype of the prototype, if you will. This was Bruce and Sam taking Ash, realizing where he was going in the next movie, and deciding that they were just going to make him the same kind of cat in this movie. And... I'll be damned. Yeah, you can go. You can go and talk a blue streak about everything that this that this movie isn't. Hell, I'll join in with you on that. The fact is, is what it is is still entertaining. 
and it's actually still, for what they had to work with, it's impressive in the same way that Robert Rodriguez's action movies are impressive. His, yeah, I would tell you his, that um, a modern successor to this, spiritual successor to the to Evil Dead Two and Army of Darkness would be From Dusk Till Dawn. The same sort of not particularly scary, but still unpleasant to look at vampires. The, you know, the over-the-top uh, acting and action. I mean, it's different. And, and maybe at some point we can get to uh, From Dusk Till Dawn and then it's terrible, uh, made, I think, direct-to-video sequels. Um, just for fun. But uh, I think it's uh, that, same, that same vein in you know, trying to take a horror trope and throw some comedy in there and find, you know, and find a palatable balance. Uh, I mentioned, just moving right, things right along, I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, my friends dragged me to hell. Da, 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 da. They dragged me to go see Army of Darkness. And I, and I had no foreknowledge of the evil dead and know what they were. I did, they just said, this will be fun. It's a guy with a chainsaw fighting zombies. Well, I mean, you know, how could you go wrong with that description? So um, one of the things that, right off the bat, I will tell you about my experience with Army of Darkness, both then and now, is if you know nothing about the first two movies... Army of Darkness works pretty well as its own independent movie. Sure, it makes a little bit more sense if you understand what happens in the, in the second Evil Dead movie, but if you're like me and you don't, um, it's a guy who gets dropped through a wormhole through time into the middle of the Crusades, and he's got, you know, he's got his car, and he's got a chainsaw, and he's got people who uh, don't know what to make of him, so they, they react quite naturally. He's a witch. Burn him. So, you know, and it just kind of goes on from there. And then he goes on a quest to find the Holy Grail and restore the kingdom. Fantastic. Wonderful. And the story is all this time. Uh, all we need is a frog and a magic ring. We would have been in good shape. In any case, it, 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 in and of itself, it's a fun story. And, it, again, it goes right back to the same thing. It takes the element of a little scary, a lot of funny, and it just takes it, I think, a page further where um, I found the movie to probably be the most – in the most enjoyable of all of all three in terms of well okay let me go let me go back a step i found it as enjoyable as the first one more enjoyable than the second one but i found it more you know as enjoyable as the first one for different reasons um if i was going to recommend any of these movies i would recommend army of darkness to somebody who doesn't necessarily like horror movies uh but you know but doesn't mind looking at unpleasant things I think Army of Darkness is really funny. I think Army of Darkness, uh, the plot of it, actually works pretty well. He go, you know, he, I, I sort of said it mockingly before, but he essentially goes on a quest, uh, a quest to bring back the Necromicon and shut down the evil that possesses, uh, possesses him in the future. Okay, great. Um, and, you know, and he has to play a hero. My only problem with this movie, and I, I want to start here, and then you guys can give me your impressions and take the conversation any way you want, um, my, I think, like I said, the whole opening sequence where uh, <laughs> he's just a fish out of water and he's trying to figure things out and he ends up fighting the deadite in the, in the pit and he gets his chainsaw back and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, and, th- and then he's like, you want a piece of me? I love it. Loved all of that stuff. And then he goes on his, he goes on his hero's quest, like you do. And then there's this scene where he, he walks into a place and he shatters the mirror and inside the mirror are a little, are, you know, then we're into Gulliver's Travels. That scene <laughs> went on forever 
and I thought it was retarded. Gavin? Aww. <laughs> the the Gulliver's Travel scene is one of my favorite scenes because it, I think it epitomizes the sheer insanity of everything that he's been through. One of the things that I think is worth mentioning, if, if we can rewind to the beginning of Army of Darkness, is I, I mentioned with Evil Dead 2 that there was a definite plan here. And if you pay attention in Evil Dead 2, you have this scene where Ash and Annie are looking at the Necronomicon, and she's explaining to him that in 1300 AD, there was this man that was called the hero from the sky, and he was prophesied to have destroyed the evil. Well, Ash's response to this is, he didn't do a very good job. And if you, if you pay close attention when the camera pans by, it's very clearly just Ash standing there. Blue shirt, brown pants, holding the shotgun over his head. I believe the car is on the picture of the Necronomicon. I mean, it, it's yes. very clearly That drawing Ash. is only missing one thing, a, a, a voice caption that says, Hi, I'm Ash. Give me some sugar, baby. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so Ash, as he tends to be, is somewhat oblivious. And, and says, <laughs> well, this guy has got to do a very good job. Well, no, Ash, you didn't. Um, but the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that if you watch these movies back to back, they sort of tinker with how things get rolling between the end of Evil Dead 2 and the actual beginning of Army of Darkness. They, they play around with it. They tweak it a little bit. And instead of all of the knights hailing Ash as he falls from the sky at the end of Evil Dead 2, they're taking him into captivity at the beginning of Army of Darkness. To me, Army of Darkness is one of those movies that is infinitely watchable. If it's on, I'm watching it. If I need background noise, I'll pop it in. If I can't think of what I want to watch, I'll grab it and pop it in. Because it's easy to watch. It's fun. It's entertaining. I know it by heart. It's truly one of my favorite movies. And what endeared me to this movie and what ultimately made me such a huge Bruce Campbell fan is, is epitomized in this movie. And it's the same thing that would later make me a Ryan Reynolds fan after watching Van Wilder, is he has this impeccable comedic timing in his dialogue. And it's very simple, very natural things. And, and the scene that always pops into my head is, you know, he's, he's getting ready to go off on his quest, and the princess comes in to tell him goodbye and wish him luck, and he says, Shut the door. Were you people raised in a barn? And he just sort of mumbles to himself, wait a minute, you, you were raised in a barn. But it's, it's, <laughs> Ash evolves in this movie further to this almost self-parody that becomes the Ash that everyone knows and loves. And like you said, this is the Ash that people want to see in the sequel to Freddy versus Jason. This is the Ash that makes people want to see him cross over into every possible horror and sci-fi franchise. And it, he's the inspiration for Duke Nukem, the Give Me Some Sugar Baby, First You Want to Kill Me, Then You Want to Kiss Me, Blow, the, the Groovy, the uh, Hail to the King. I mean, this is 100% undistilled testosterone. This is this is Bruce Campbell. This is Ash in all of his glory. And from the battle with the Pit Witch 
to bullying the knights that have held him captive, to leading the charge against the army of deadites and his evil doppelganger who can't quite say Sally Forth. It's just a brilliant (laughs) portrayal of pure testosterone in a movie that falls somewhere between horror, comedy, and adventure and overlaps all three of them quite nicely. Um, Yeah, I, I... I wish I had more to add. Uh, I love the scene where he's got the multiple Necromicons and, uh, and the ongoing joke of, well, did you say all the words? Ah, mostly. <laughs> you are a Grato, terrible human being. Clato. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> yeah. I said it. You know, he opens the one book and he goes into the thing and then he opens the next book and it fights him. <laughs> he's just like, I don't know about any of this. I love that. That was great. Uh, Sean, give me some of your, um, give, give me the unsaid, what, what have we not discussed with regards to Army of Darkness? What can't this podcast end with unless we discuss? You know what? We've really hit just about everything when it comes to it. I do find it funny that this, that three movies, three Lindas, <laughs> um, <laughs> this one played by the wonderful Bridget Fonda, by the way, in I believe yeah. what would be one of earlier roles. I suppose you could say. Um, it's not okay, a- I know what I want to ask you. I know what I want to ask you. Um, so this whole movie takes place during during you know, the 1300s, and he goes and he ends his quest, and blah, blah, yakety schmackety, and then he goes back to his job at, at S-Smart, Shop S-Smart. Ah. And, and I feel like the movie just should have ended there, or if they were going to do what they, what they did in that scene, it should have been... You know, one of these shoppers turning into a dead-eyed, and then he says something, uh, you know, testosterone-driven, as Gavin says, you know, come on, she-bitch, you know, whatever. Let's get ready to rumble. You know, I'm the best in the world. Yes, yes, yes. Anything. Whatever he says. And then that's it. Then we're done. Freeze frame. Roll credits. Instead, it was like a whole other movie was starting. It just went on forever. And I'm like, oh, come on. Why are we doing this? Your thoughts? Uh, real quickly, I believe the line you're looking for is, yo, she-bitch, let's go. Yes. <laughs> that would be the one. And thank you to Jesse Starcher for posting that on Facebook. I don't know. I don't, I don't really feel bad about, about anything in this movie. Uh, I mean, obviously everybody likes to watch it and have a good laugh at the stop motion and puppeteered skeletons and everything. But you got to think that even when Sam was make, was making that, and given the fact that those are kind of a staple of a lot of Dino De Laurentiis movies, that a lot of people were not really batting an eyelash at that point. They were getting what they came what they came to see, and that was Bruce Campbell being a ridiculously over the top, hilariously assholeish figure. And you don't think they drugged the movie out too long with that final battle scene at the Smart for no good reason? Oh no, 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 no. No, no, I I don't think so at all. And the thing you got to the thing you got to remember is, I mean, in hindsight, it all worked out because it looks like as unless the universe decides to throw a monkey wrench into the plans, we're gonna get Army of Dark an Army of Darkness sequel. So 
I mean, technically, we are going to get a follow-up. But that's my point. What? If they had just if they had done it the way that I had suggested, where they don't have this elongated fight scene, um, that, that I don't think serves the movie any real purpose other than just to keep it rolling and to give Ash more stuff to do. Um, they could th- that could have set up like okay, well, kind of like the end of Evil Dead Two. He go you know the, he goes through the wormhole and they drop him in the middle of nowhere. Oh, you well, what happens next to Ash? Where where does he go from here? Um, you know, you, you, you're set up to believe that he's eliminated the deadites and that he's restored, restored balance to the Force, and then uh, one of the shoppers turns into a deadite. Ah, here we go. Yoshivit, let's go. Freeze frame. Now what's going to happen in the next movie? Instead, well, uh, it's just, you're just like, Ech, here, you know, here we go again. Go ahead, you know what? You asked... I can live with the movie kind of leaving me wanted more. Strangely... Yeah, I mean, in the sense you just mentioned, maybe it doesn't exactly make perfect sense. But ultimately, going with my gut when I watch the movie at the end of it, I leave feeling pretty damn satisfied with everything that I've, that I've seen. Because it's Sam continuing to be daring with his formula and his characters in that from the first movie to the second, he went from low-budget but serious horror that has an element of unintentional comedy to a movie that turns up the level of comedy but still manages to keep it balanced with scares. And now here, we are just getting straight-up, classic, almost pulpy, grindhouse-type storytelling. Um, Gavin, you were starting with pitch in here. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you asked what what was left to discuss before we wrap this up. And I think it's worth noting, since you weren't thrilled with the ending that we got for Army of Darkness, that there is an alternate ending out there. There's an original ending that was filmed before this That's that true. didn't test well. And, you know, I've watched it, and it fits the Ash character. It fits in with the story that's being told in Army of Darkness. Mark, have you seen the alternate <laughs> ending by chance? Does somebody get raped by a tree? No. Um, he's The whole thing where he's not very good at paying attention and following instructions. Take one drop, or take three drops, or take seven drops, whatever. And something distracts him, and he miscounts how many drops of the potion he takes. Oh, and he wakes up in this very dystopian future, surrounded by garbage. Everything has gone to hell in a handbasket. And mm-hmm. he just, he cries out, I slept too long. And that's how it ends, with Ash being this sort of, no matter how cool and cocky he may be, he's still this very hapless fellow that doesn't pay attention and follow directions well. And I, think I have a question about that. Is, does does okay. Mr. Strickland show up and shoot at him with a shotgun saying, eat lead slacker? Unfortunately, no. Um, <laughs> that's how I would have yeah, the movie. It would been fantastic. But um, I think it's—I think that what we got was much more satisfying than what was originally intended. Yeah, okay. yeah. We have uh, we have less than two minutes left, and then we're gonna we're we're gonna go into overruns just because our plugs are a whole show unto themselves here on the Rattledge Broadcasting <laughs> Network. <laughs> so well, we have we have much to said, discuss for the next series of shows here. Um, I will say uh, in my in my last two minutes here, and I'm going to address this a little bit further. 
shortly in, in the overrun. But this is, in fact, my last show on the long road to ruin until June. I intend to be back in June uh, to reclaim my, my rightful hosting duties here on the long road to ruin. Uh, Robert Winfrey will be stepping in for me, uh, and they will start April 8th. will be the first long road to ruin with Robert Winfrey as host and Sean, obviously, as co-host. Uh, so, you know, come back, come back in about a half an hour. Uh, it shouldn't be any longer than that. Come back in about 30 minutes, and you'll, uh, you can hear whatever we discuss in the overrun, plugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's always the best part of the show, right, Sean? Okay. Um, oh, well, Gavin, you were saying? Uh, I was just going to throw in a couple of little tidbits about the Ash character in general and Bruce Campbell's involvement, and then I'll shut up, and you guys can wrap this up until we get to the plugs. Um, you mentioned... Ash and Freddie and Jason, and that was actually supposed to be the sequel. We were supposed to go from Freddie versus Jason to Freddie versus Jason versus Ash. And right. what hung what hung it up was creative differences between Bruce Campbell and the folks making the movie because he insisted that if Ash were going to be in the movie, that Ash had to win the fight. And his logic was very sound, was because Freddie has been proven to be supernatural and he's going to come back no matter what. Jason is, has been proven to be supernatural, and he's going to come back no matter what. Ash, at the end of the day, even though he's been bounced back and forth throughout the time stream, is still just a guy, and once he's dead, he's dead. That's it. There's also the point of the matter that between Freddy, Jason, and Ash, there's only one even moderate character there that can be described as a hero, and that's Ash. And so I think he's very I, much a I, hero. I think Army of Darkness, he actually went through the same hero's arc as Luke Skywalker. Sure. And, and, you know, I will applaud Bruce for standing up for what he felt the character should be. And as disappointed as I was that we didn't get the Freddy versus Jason versus Ash movie, um, I believe it was IDW Entertainment, or maybe it was Dynamite, one or the other, actually came out with Freddy versus Jason versus Ash comic books, which is a brilliant story and as well done as you could have hoped for the movie to have been. That said, if you ever have the opportunity to see Bruce Campbell at any type of convention, be it comic book, movie, pop culture, horror, or whatever the case may be, do not take any of the Army of Darkness comic books to him to be signed because he won't do it. And the reason for that is simple. The likeness of the character was sold without his permission and he gets no royalties from any of those books. And so he won't sign any of the Army of Darkness books. Now, there are good stories to be told in those books, and if you enjoy the Ash character, I will tell you, look those up, because they have crossed him over with just about every possible combination of horror, sci-fi, and comic book character that you could possibly imagine them being able to do so legally. Um, they're entertaining reads. They do a lot to, if you, if you have the ability to read them with Bruce Campbell's voice in mind for Ash, they're very entertaining, and they do a great job of, of filling in the gaps of what Ash has been up to since we saw Army of Darkness. But um, the little teaser at the end of the, the 2012 version of, of Evil Dead where he turns to the camera and you can just see the outline of Bruce's face in the darkness and he just simply says groovy 
it's enough to get me excited for what's uh, rumored to be coming out in 2016 and, and, and a new adventure of Ash. Um, so I've enjoyed this. I'm glad you guys had me on. Uh, I'm glad that uh, you honored the bet, Mark. I had no doubt that you would, but I'm, I'm certainly glad that you did, and I, I had a lot of fun doing this. I'll let you guys uh, take us into the plugs from here. All right. Um, you know, it's your show going forward here for the next two months, Sean, so you get the last word on all of this. And I'll cut you off a couple of times throughout this podcast, so get it all out, baby. <laughs> no problem, no problem. Well, I think we've said about everything there is to say about the actual movies. Plug-wise, uh, to give you guys some idea of what's going to be coming while Mark is going to be out, the ones that we have planned so far, are we are going to kick things off on April 8th with a two-part look at Saw. Uh, we've been looking forward to this for a long, long, long time because this is another one of my all-time favorite horror franchises, and the first movie is actually one of my all-time favorite movies, period. Um, we're going to be splitting it up so that the first one, the first, uh, the first episode, we're going to be talking about the first three movies, which is affectionately known as the Amanda Trilogy, for those of you who are very, in, who are very into this franchise. Uh, and then we're going to be going into the next four that continued on past what James Wan, I think, initially tended to be the swan song for the story of Jigsaw. And... After we wrap up that two-part look, in which I believe Robert Winfrey has more or less promised me that he has got rants about the second half of the series that are going to be on par with my yelling about Hellraiser and Paranormal Activity 4. Uh, after that, we are going to go into actually one of the most intriguing franchises I've wanted to get to for a while. And that, believe it or not, is The Fast and the Furious. Uh, it's one of the only franchises I can recall that started with a pretty good Guilty Pleasure movie that was fairly original for its time, spawned two absolutely horrendous sequels, and then somehow managed to actually reinvent itself and become really great with the next three movies that came after it. Uh Looking very forward to that one. That's going to be another two-parter. Uh, the Fast and the Furious, Too Fast, Too Furious, and The Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift in one episode. And the Return and the uh, return of Dominic uh, trilogy, soon to be four movies, quadrilogy, uh, is going to be coming in the next one after that. Uh, if we have some time while Mark is out, we may obviously shift this plan a little bit. Uh... Hang on, Fast and the Furious is going to be one or two podcasts. Oh, that, that's going to be a two-part. These, uh, these three that I'm talking about are all going to be two-parters. There is no way we are trying to get all of these into one show. Um, you, because... uh, you absolutely need to recruit Jed for Fast and the Furious, too. Just throwing that out there. He loves those movies oh. dearly. Uh, oh. I will think about it. We'll talk. We'll talk about that off off the air. Um, but uh, yeah, so we've got those two planned definitely. And if it should happen that maybe 
Well, and I, I was going to say before Gavin cut me off, Mark, as you're so often fond of saying, I love you like a brother, man. But if you ever again try to cram more than four movies into one podcast like you have a few times, <laughs> I swear I will Kickstarter crowdfund the money for me to fly first class down to Florida to personally bitch slap you. Oh, um, that's not it. Sorry. <laughs> those, well, no, I, I kid. I kid. Um, this, this is a kinder, gentler Sean. Tra- that than, wait a sec. Other than Twilight, when have I tried to cram more than four movies into a podcast? And four has always been the limit, and that's, that's due to time constraints. Well, even even four though gets a little bit gets a little bit. I think that was why I said after I think I said after Superman was the one where I just said never again because I I love doing this I love doing this show I absolutely I absolutely love it but the thing is is we get to split it up so that the prep is reasonable. And I don't mean to sound offensive or like I'm genuinely angry. It's just... No, no, I'm not getting that. I'm just... I, I'm trying to figure out when when did I do this recently and the only one I can think of was Alien. And it had oh, to that's... be because, that's the, because oh. Benjamin was on the show and we had to we had to go forward uh, trying well, to get all of those podcasts I... done in a short amount of time. Well, yeah, and, and I realize that Alien was a matter of necessity, but man, that's that's always been one of my rules, though, is to always to always try to <laughs> try to object and be the voice of be the voice of reason because I I remember after those two, I loved doing them. I, I Superman was fun, and I loved doing the show with. Uh, hang on, I will tell you, was, everyone thought the Superman podcast went on forever. So it's a, yeah. the, I'll tell you what the problem with the Superman podcast was. It wasn't the four movies. It was the four guests. Okay. <laughs> Robert and Robert were, were awesome on that show. But, I mean, three is the magic number. And when it's just me and you, um, yeah. you know, it, also, it obviously it also flows me. More than three people, and, and no matter how many movies you're talking about, the show just drags. Right. So that was the well, problem well, yeah. with Superman. We had four people talking and four movies to talk about. And I mean, and we do make we do make rare exceptions. And yes, I realize that, you know, I I may be a writer, but yes, I have mastered rudimentary arithmetic. Thank you. I do realize that the way we're splitting the saw, yes, Robert Winfrey and I are going to be talking about four movies in one show. Noted. However, we can get away with that because those four movies all have a lot of the same problems in common with them. Um, they all fail for a lot of the same reasons. So oftentimes it's going to be easy for us to go back and forth talking about movies without having to go boom, 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 boom. Okay, there. We gave each movie all the time that it needed. Done. Um, but anyway, I'm getting way off track here. Um, speaking of ones where we may have to do that, um, the um, the Hang on, actually, one, I'm going to stop you there. I gotta stop you for yeah, one second because I'm I'm typing up the schedule based on what you're telling me, and this is awesome radio, by the way. Um, you've got Saw Part One April eighth, Saw Part Two April twenty second, A Fast and the Furious Part One May sixth, Fast and the Furious Part Two is May twentieth. If you go into the Nightmare on Elm Street, that's going to take you uh, to June third and then um, June seventeenth, I believe. So, which means yeah. that I don't come back again until July. If if you want to take that long off and continue enjoying your time with with Jonas, you are more than welcome to. Um, why don't we tentatively go ahead and do that? Because I want you guys to do your podcast, but let's. But we're gonna 
but I will be. But I am telling you right now, I won't need longer than this. So we're gonna t- we're uh, we're gonna say that when you're done with the night after you're done with the Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm coming back, and I'm telling you right now what we're doing as soon as I come back. We're doing the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, you know what? It, you, me, and Sam are talking about Batman for 90 minutes to two hours. What are we talking about? It's us three talking about Batman. That is going to go two hours. Um, yeah, I am totally down with that. Um, but, yes, so after that, we are, we are doing Nightmare on Elm Street. We haven't decided how we're going to split that up because the funny thing about that franchise is that Yes, it's another one of those where I fear we're probably going to have to talk about four or more movies in one sitting. I don't like that, but we're probably going to have to. That's because of all the movies, in my opinion, there are only three good ones, but they're not consecutive. In fact, they're spaced out arguably as weirdly as the good Hellraiser movies because you've got the original, classic. You've got Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Warriors, um, which is also very good. Not my favorite, but very good. And then you have got um, one that I rank up there with the first one, and that is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I In between... Oh, God, I didn't know they could stack shit that high. Um, it is. It is just practically one irredeemable sequel after another. So that one's going to get tricky, and Robert and I are probably going to have to, probably going to have to powwow a little bit in private. <laughs> Alliteration is fun. And, and talk about how exactly we want to divvy those up, because I've got them down, I've got the movies either on DVD or downloaded, but I haven't watched them yet. Um... So, okay. um, so real quick, I just posted the schedule. Um, the next two yeah, Tuesdays are dedicated to the Metal Hammer of Doom, um, regardless of whether or not I, I, the Jonas Exodus comes early. But uh, if, um, I, and I'm still planning on being on them, but if my wife goes into labor, which we found out yesterday could happen anytime between yesterday and next week, then um, Robert is going to have to call an audible and he's on his own. Uh, and then again, the the Winfrey era of <laughs> the long road to ruin begins April eighth with Saw Part One. Um, I've got uh, a loose schedule now on Facebook for those that are interested. Um, Robert Cooper will have to sort of figure out what he wants to do with the Metal Hammer of Doom on the in between weeks. But I'm actually glad we have Gavin on right now because, um, you know, as we just talked about, uh, you guys pretty much have run of the show until June, until June 17th. Um, but when I come back in June, we actually, and I'm going to let you finish plugging yourself in just a second, but uh, Gavin, myself, and Chris Evans of the Casual Heroes will actually be taking over um, the Tuesday night spot, and everyone's moving over to the Thursday, which means some of these dates may shift. Uh, with a new podcast, that a joint podcast between the Casual Heroes and the Rattledgen Broadcasting Network called The Whiskey Rebellion. I talked about this on the overrun on the, on the 401 Ground and Pound show. I'm going to keep making the announcement. When I come back in June, right, Gavin? The Whiskey Rebellion right. rides again. That's what you're telling me. 
So we're going to be we're going to be talking movies, we're going to talk MMA, we're going to talk conspiracies, news of the day, politics, you name it, we're talking about it and we'll be taking <laughs> calls. Unless I don't like you and then I'm not taking your call. You know who you are. <laughs> and that's all, and that is all I'm saying. Don't don't no no no. Just just know if I don't like you, you're not getting on the show. Comma the end. Back to you, Sean. <laughs> Uh, yes, that is all we're going to be saying about that. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, not the only irons I've got in the fire, however. Uh, folks, I'm back in a big way and busier than ever. Uh, coming up in April, um, on a date that is kind of yet to be announced, so I'm not going to bother going into announcing it here, uh, my former music column, Give Life Back to Music, is coming back now that I'm finally, now that I've got the old power ring fully charged up again. Um, and it's going to be kicking off with a brief four-week look at the catalog of the Dixie Chicks. Um, I am anticipating much feedback from Gavin about how much about how much he can't stand them, but quite frankly, I'm <laughs> fine with that because I've also promised I'm going to do a Garth Brooks retrospective eventually. Um, in addition to that, this coming Monday sandwiched in between those two, uh, my website for my private business is finally going to be launching, um, seocontentcopywriters.com. That is going to be the new home of my online marketing brand uh, called Ken's Content LLC. Um, You will be hearing ads for that coming up periodically on mine and Mark's shows as I'm able to record them. But basically, if you need help writing content for a website, press releases, blogs, articles, even custom online training curricula for your, for your business team, uh, please, by all means, find me there. And we have flexible pricing to meet any business's budget. I'm very proud of this. I've spent over a year and a half getting the foundation in place to really get this business started, and I feel like I'm finally ready to uh, kind of be an actual businessman here and kind of level up and really start taking this seriously. Uh, In addition, just this morning, I started writing the first script for a project I've wanted to do for a long, long time, Uh, my first foray into video reviews. and by video, I, of course, mean clips sparse together with me giving a running voiceover commentary the entire time. Uh, I'm still getting it worked out, so it's going to be a little while before we probably see it, but sometime, hopefully this summer, I'm, hope, I'm wanting to debut a series that is going to take a look at the legacy of all eight seasons of Dexter, one episode at a time. Every season... All 96 96 episodes, the good, the bad, the what the fuck, oh my God, why, all wrapped up into one. Uh, So stay tuned for that. And also, if anybody out there happens to run a fairly successful, uh, reputable music blog, uh, by all means, feel free to get in touch with me over on the Long Road to Ruin Facebook page because I also have got another collaborative blog project in development that I would like to discuss privately because it's a great idea. It's just that we're looking for a home for it for the time being. 
Uh, we've already ruled certain websites out, and a couple have not gotten back to us yet. So by all means, if you'd like to see a couple samples from us, uh, hit me up over there, and I would be more than happy to talk turkey with you for a bit. And I think that's all the plugs except to say uh, <laughs> thank you again to everybody who helped me wade through so much stuff personally and get back to where I could feel comfortable being on the air and you kind like, of being on the air in this kind of skin. So, did you like your welcome back song? Did Did you enjoy that? Mark, I, I kid you not, and I'm not exaggerating. I could not stop smiling uh, the entire time. I I can't believe you actually took the time to put all that together. Uh, yes, I actually like ushered my wife out of the office. I usually will invite her to come in and sit with me, but she was, uh, you know, just talking, talking, talking. And I'm like, look, could you just go somewhere else right now? I gotta get this done before the show starts. She's like, what are you working on? I'm like, I'm like well, essentially it's a virtual blowjob for Sean. Why do you ask? She's like, oh, well, well, don't let me stop you. Well, I, I honestly didn't expect that. I, I really didn't. I really didn't expect that at all. I just kind of sat back and enjoyed every single clip that you picked out, and it, it really means the world to kind of to kind of know that I was that I was missed because really, in my absence, Robert and Patrick didn't. Absolutely fantastic job on their shows. They did. Um, they, Back to the Future, All right. Missing Act, were, were both tremendously, tremendously yeah, enjoyable. Yeah, they were a lot of fun. All right, yeah. Mr. Gavin, plugs, casual heroes, hit it. Oh, oh wait, 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 hang on, Mark. Can I get one more in? Yes, sir. One more than I almost yeah, got. Go. Okay, one more because I promised this to, uh, because I promised this to her when I talked to her on Skype and also because she absolutely deserves it. By all means, uh, if you enjoy our style of reviewing, if you're a big horror fan, especially if you love B-horror and sci-fi, I encourage you, go to your choice, either thatguywiththeglasses.com or um, over to Allison Pregler's Blit TV page, which is Obscurus Lupa Presents, and check out her full line of shows, not just Obscure Sloopa Presents, which looks at uh, lower-grade action sci-fi and horror movies, but also go check out Manic Episodes, because she's also a huge genre TV fan who is just on the cusp of wrapping up a look at an exhaustive look, I might add, an exhaustive, hilarious look at all eight seasons of Charmed. Um, and while you're there, you might even want to go take a look at her boyfriend, Phelan Porteous' page. Um, he's known on that guy with the glasses.com as Phelous, has been since the early days of the site. And he is also an outstanding, very meta, very funny horror reviewer. Um, those are fantastic pages and people who have had no small degree of influences on what uh, I, alongside Mark, have tried to build Long Road Ruin into. Oh, and uh, turn off that block. Don't be a dick. This is their living. Install. If you have it installed, turn it on for every other site. Turn it off for theirs. All right, Gavin, hit it. Quick, before Sean plugs something else. Yeah. Uh, the com. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on our RSS feed. 
over at the site. If you go to iTunes, subscribe and rate us five stars. I'll be honest, I don't really know how Stitcher works because I've never used it, but if you can rate us over there, please do so. Give us a nice glowing review. We'll appreciate it. You'll get nothing out of it but a warm feeling in your belly, but honestly, that's enough. Uh, Coming up over the next few weeks, we're going to have some more interviews with the folks that will be appearing at Remix Pro Wrestling, hopefully to include but not limited to the Honky Tonk Man, AJ Styles, Kevin Steen, and others. As soon as his publicist gets back to me, we have been in contact. We're just trying to hammer out dates. But as soon as his publicist does get back with me, <clears throat> we'll have not one but two interviews upcoming with the hardcore legend himself, WWE Hall of Famer and three-time WWE World Heavyweight Champion, along with New York Times best-selling author a few times over, the one and only Mick Foley will be joining us on the Casual Heroes ahead of Tricon. And as far as Tricon goes, be prepared for the comic cast to return with a vengeance as myself, Tim, possibly Chris, and some other guests will be interviewing the folks that will be at Tricon 2014 in Huntington, West Virginia on May 31st. Again, including but not limited to folks such as writer of Guy Gardner uh, and Winona Earp, Bo Smith, uh, Billy Tucci, artist on She, and several other projects. Uh, we are hoping, crossing our fingers, and praying to all the deities that we individually worship um, that we can get Gail Simone to join us. Uh, so a lot of big stuff coming down the pipe from us. In addition to that, we have the standard fare of raw recaps from Jed. And Jed, don't worry, I haven't forgotten you. My Internet should be working, and I should be able to get your raw recap up. Um, we also have the WrestleCast. We have... The movie cast, we have the championship rounds with myself and Patrick Mullen. You can find us on Twitter at The Casual Heroes. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. And uh, put in some requests. We'll do our best to accommodate them. So we are, in fact, recording a Casual Heroes tomorrow? Yes. Okay. Um, more on uh, that in just a second here. Uh, we started doing these Casual Hero Rattlers and Broadcasting Joint Live WrestleCast. Um, we're going to be limiting to them to either special events and or pay-per-view pre- and post-shows. The next one is April 6th, and that's WrestleMania. And unless I'm actually sitting in the hospital, I will be – I've already told my wife, I said, look, unless you're actually in labor, I will be doing this. I'm not <laughs> – I'm going to be there for these guys. I'm going to be there for WrestleMania. God damn it. So <laughs> now that I've said that. Uh, I'm sure he'll be born on April 6th, and I'm just going to kick stuff. In any case, (laughs) don't be surprised if I start doing a podcast from from Tampa General Hospital, okay? Uh, They've got free Internet. What the hell? It's on the network. So uh, there is a plan still in place to do a um, a Casual Heroes Rattledge and Broadcasting pre-WrestleMania show on the day of the event, April 6th and then a live post-show to uh, take phone calls, hear kvetching, uh, have a collective cry when Triple H becomes the world heavyweight champion. You know the whole deal, <laughs> right, Kevin? I, I know the whole deal. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, again, everything right now is sort of up in the air uh, with, with, uh, with, with recent um, stuff going on in my personal world, but provided things stay as they, they are supposed to be and as they are scheduled, uh, next Tuesday is the Metal Hammer of Doom uh, favorite covers. It's just me and Robert Cooper playing wacky covers and shooting the shit. Um, about that show, if it actually happens, 
We will be for the first time on the Metal Hammer of Doom taking uh, requests. I would appreciate if those requests are uh, done through Facebook or Twitter or email. Uh, please don't call in. But um, any, any, you know, as, as you're listening to the show, if you want to Facebook me or Twitter me a, a request that you want to hear on that episode of the Metal Hammer of Doom, we will do the best we can to accommodate you. So that'll be fun. We'll see if anyone actually sends us in some requests. You can send them in ahead of time as well. And you can find me at, at Mark Rattledge on Twitter. You can also email me at mrattledge at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook, Mark Rattledge LCSW. Um, this Sunday, I will be doing, again, provided I'm not in the hospital, I will be doing uh, coverage of UFC Fight Night 38, Cripple Fight. Dan Henderson versus Shogun 2, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, we'll see which one of them doesn't die in the ring first. So I'll be doing coverage of that for 411. It's probably going to be the last coverage, uh, last night of coverage I do for 411 uh, for quite some time, if ever. I haven't quite made up my mind just yet. We'll see how, we'll see how things go next week. Um, at the same time that that's happening... Robert Winfrey will be firmly planted in the host chair for the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. Uh, him, Pat Mullen, and Jeff Harris, if he decides to come back after stopping off the show last week because we called him clucky. Well, Pat called him clucky. I told him to stop it. Don't be, don't, don't be a bully. Be a star, Pat. Um, so provided Jeff comes back, uh, they'll be discussing um, all the happenings in the world of MMA at the same time, getting live updates from me from uh, UFC Fight Night 38 Triple Fight. Um, you can also, t- what was that? I'm laughing at that memory of that way harder than I should be. <laughs> be nice. Be a star. Don't be a bully. Um, I'm not being. I'm not saying anything. I'm legitimately laughing because <laughs> I cracked my shit. My shit up, and I was. I think you cost me a goal in NHL 14 during the show because. <laughs> <laughs> because I was, I was uh, in the third year against Los Angeles, I think. <laughs> and I just made uh, also, content. other Rattledge and Broadcasting shows you should check out. Uh, Robert Winfrey's Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. He's knee-deep in comic villains, uh, so give that a listen. Uh, I was I did The Joker a few weeks ago. Pat Mullen talked about some guy called Dr. Doom who nobody's heard of. And then last week he had 106 people on the show talking about Spider-Man. It was fantastic. So give that a listen. Um, this week I think he's doing Batman villains. But you should jump on that shit, Mr. Comer, because you're the Batman expert. So um, Friday night, Batman villains. Everyone loves a bad guy. And then Robert Cooper, the hardest working man in podcasts, uh, joins up with casual hero Jason Teasley to do the From the Cheap Seats show, where they talk mostly football and then a smattering of other sports, and then I'm pretty sure they make chicken noises for the rest of the show. I'm not sure how all that works. And lastly, <laughs> Robert Cooper, Sentai Hentai Frentai, uh, something Japanese podcast where he talks about Japanese Power Rangers and the like. I don't understand a word of it because I don't know no Japanese. All right. So uh, with that, um, this is it. This is it for me for a while. This is the last long road to ruin until uh, it's looking like mid-June, uh, beginning of July, somewhere in there. I'll be back with the Dark Knight. Sean, I wish you well. Of course, I'll see you online. Robert Winfrey, take good care of my baby. And with that... My name is Jonas. Cool.